it's just there's a there's a disconnect between the desires and needs of individual people and then what this what the market of academia is willing to offer us which is mostly yeah. dog shit um and it was dog shit that was before covid and now it has just completely imploded so we're gonna have amazon university and that's gonna be the only place that you can teach like i just don't i want i, I want to teach and i want to write books but you don't need necessarily a phd to do either um, no yeah. you don't yeah. it's just disappointing to sort of i don't know we put a lot of emotion and desire into the that space at least i have mm -hmm. like and so trying to conceptualize a life outside of that i can see peach on the window i know she's chilling in the sun <laughs> cares what i was saying peach <laughs> yeah she got mad at me because they tried to pet her and she scratched the shit out of my arm so how dare you <laughs> She's like, but, fuck you, man. I got well, shit going on. Yes, but I think this this discourse is very relevant because, like, I don't want to put this. Um, you can teach and write books without a PhD uh, using YouTube and the internet, but in order to achieve a level of legitimacy doing those things, you basically have to do them twice as good, at least. Uh, at the, you know, um, with this, like, you know, no institutional funding or uh, any sort of rubber stamp credential. Uh, so you have, yeah, you have to like do all those things better in order to make up for this lack of a heuristic that allows, you know, people to just kind of trust you without knowing anything about what you do. Right. Epistemology is the big thing, right? Like the knowledge, like knowledge has to come from a particular place from a particular person in a certain context and then the credentials are then leveraged to I'm, I'm doing everything I can to not make this a sequel of my appearance on Horror Vanguard where I just talked about Foucault the entire time <laughs> I think it's so fucking relevant but it's relevant here too it's like this, these like the, the discourse of knowing and of knowledge is like so caught up in all the stupid bullshit that exists outside of those like like in all actuality exists outside of the space of like obtaining, observing, synthesizing, and then creating new epistemologies like that. Like those things aren't mutually it, like that. They, they aren't like com the Venn diagram is not a circle there. Right. The, it get the two ideas, they get pulled so far apart to where like when you're able to sort of achieve what you can achieve in the academic space just becomes this thin little sliver. And it's like, what do you want? What do you want me to do? But right. I can't capitulate that much. I'm a human being. So I just, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And I don't know. I think I'm, I think I'm reading the writing on the wall a little bit, just about like the likelihood of a, not necessarily successful, but even like marginally comfortable future in academia is just slipping out of my grasp you know what i mean mm. just just looking at how the system is eating itself in the face of this pandemic um and how if it even recovers which it might not given what's going on um then we we're looking at like 10 to 15 years before we really see uh an institutional economy that's like even worth putting your time into. Mm. And at that point, it's like, why not just focus on, if we wanna talk about alternative forms of education, why not start conceptualizing and working towards them? You know, knowing that like, we have no idea how it's gonna work, but the, the possibilities are a little bit more open for, for success for that, instead of attempting to just eat your own shorts and, lick boots until you get a paycheck that's not going to kill you you know what i mean i just i don't like it i think somewhat uh ironically um i i view your perspective like which is a justified lament of like uh the loss of a space uh for intellectual pursuit it also is somewhat tearing down some of the bullshit around who can teach which I view as an opportunity, uh, you know, like I, I would like to potentially teach one day in something, 
that I have learned, but I don't necessarily want to get a PhD to do that. Right. And, you know, we're, we're entering into a space where even a PhD is not necessarily a guarantee of a job. So why even spend the time doing it? You know, um, a bachelor's degree is not a guarantee of a job. You know, we're seeing this sort of, Kyle, like you were saying, this rise of um, education. No, was that you, Stephen? Educational programs on um, places like YouTube or, you know, these quote master classes of people who didn't even get a fucking college degree and just built up expertise. The most renowned writer in economics right now is just some guy who started going to uh, conferences and started writing about it and his sub substack has now just blown up uh you know writings uh notes on the crises nathan's um financial and economic analysis like he's just some guy uh and you know people uh have paid attention to his writing because in some ways he's acknowledged that he's like i'm not just some guy like i'm a white guy that they allowed to start going to these conferences and allowed to ask questions and uh, he does have some privilege, but he, he's not a professor. He just pays attention and thinks and uses his skills and his abilities, which is cool. Uh, but it certainly throws a lot of social norms into disarray because we're dealing with more people than ever before, uh, more complicated issues than ever before. And, you know, a lot of what we're learning about education uh, that's highlighted by the crisis you know people have been talking about for a long time that the ivy league universities aren't necessarily better educational systems they're sorting mechanisms and a lot of the university system is a sorting mechanism social heuristic purposes right right well and you know i think a lot about like just look at the landscape of like independent journalism as a sort of like interesting analogy for who can do what and what skills you need and what certifications you need. Just the fact that there are independent journalists who that constantly just by their very existence fly in the face of this sort of like legacy journalism where you had to pass the gates in order to find credibility and legitimacy. I think it's possible in other intellectual industries to uh, find that in space, that inroads, right? Um, particularly because what we're producing is still important. It just may be, it may be more difficult to get it to a certain audience and finding ways to imagine these sort of alternative models for education in a rapidly changing world is an important, at the very least, thought exercise. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I think it's hard sometimes in the United States because the university system is so wrapped up with classism in that uh, we don't, you know, some of the, some of the countries have a better perhaps differentiation between technical education. Uh, so I'll say like being a doctor, uh, a medical doctor or a very specific type of engineer, um, you know, like a structural engineer or something along those lines where you don't necessarily want some random person to just walk off the street into these occupations and make decisions and have that responsibility. Uh, but in the United States, we have just like this commingling of, you know, I, I, I went to school, went to bachelor's degree for theater. Um, it's good to have an education in theater and there are things that you can learn to differentiate being educated and skilled technically within theater. Um, but it's, it's just kind of odd to me that uh, there's, I don't know, there's, there's not a better differentiation there because, um, you know, a, a doctorate, a PhD, I, I don't know, just the language that we even use, it's kind of, um, it's antiquated and it comes from a place that it doesn't help us differentiate who can play uh, and what does it mean to have a doctorate. Uh, in terms of education, like what does it mean to be a doctorate of theater? And, and for example, like, and does that give you more uh, credibility or the ability, authority to, to really sort of gatekeep? Um, and are there industries or are there sort of fields of knowledge that that maybe is a good thing? Um, and I think that's the case, but it, it's generally not the case for most things, especially like journalism. 
Right. Yeah, the the J school kind of gatekeeping thing is this holdover from these old environments that it doesn't really hold up in the same way that it does considering the way that we communicate. But also, like one one thing that isn't taken taken into account uh, by the way educational structures and sort of the culture of education that rises from them is like what in the holy hell is the goal of this institution as well as what are the goals of the individual actors from within this institution like for myself for example as someone who's very attached to teaching as sort of a a mode of living even uh my goal is of course like within the context of a college classroom my goals are very simple, understand something about uh, history is my specialty is my BMA masters are in the, the understanding how to analyze and synthesize historical sources, how to make an argument and then how to like fundamentally put that into a cogent paper and become a better basically I want them to be better readers and better writers, but sort of the macro goal uh, of all of this for me at the very least is to create more teachers. Um, because we don't, we, I live in Florida, there's a teacher shortage that has been going on for as long as I can remember. There's never enough, it's because they don't move, teachers don't get paid enough, that sort of a thing. But also I think there's, there, there's, there are these spaces that we can't reconcile the goals of capital with the goals of whatever this particular mode of engagement or body of knowledge is. It just, it just they don't work together. So te teaching as something that is purely career-minded, that's that's about some level of upward mobility into the middle class, that's about, and then that's repackaged in all of this like Hollywood bullshit of like, you know, teaching is about helping the lost kid. It's about going, it's about being the white guy who goes into the room with all the black kids and they're like, you don't understand us. And he's like, did you know that Shakespeare was a rapper? And then everything fixes itself which is just complete, <laughs> it's complete bullshit. That's not how education works. That's not how I've worked in low income schools before. That's not how that shit works. Those kids can smell that shit on you when you walk in the door. It's so much of what teaching is, is about being pragmatic, about understanding that young people and children have human agency. And that a friend of mine who's an incredible teacher, she's a special education teacher. I admire her very much. Probably my oldest friend put it this way one time. We were talking about how when we work with kids, um, how we're very like prone to bribing um, and there's this like idea that like bribes have like become like or quid pro quo or like some sort of exchange is like off off limits when it comes to children it's like why should they do anything for free like like what like hey I need you to do x y and z and if you do I will give you this the idea that that has become like it's very authoritarian to think that like you can't use sort of negotiation in a process of exchange with young people in order to get them to do the things that you need to do. And it reminds me a lot of just the way that people conceptualize teaching as this sort of like abstract good that you don't like that doesn't it doesn't need to get material like like you don't need material like you don't need income to pay into this good because the job is just it's just so rewarding and it's like motherfucker if it were so rewarding then why why like why don't i have more money in my bank account like if it's so rewarding then reward me right uh, it's this idea that education is just like this fluffy thing that exists completely outside of the social structures that have helped to sort of bring it into existence and it's like that's that's not true <laughs> it's like it's not only not true but it's caused people to be like I like to, to not, you know, appropriately fund and address the needs that are in education. It's just completely ridiculous. Well, yeah. I mean, people, to your point, people think that things like universities are these sort of like utopian worlds of knowledge that exist outside of the capitalist society that we live in. When in reality, it's a money laundering operation. It's about uh, maintaining space and holding space and holding property and holding capital and the entire university system, all the departments, how classes are assigned, how people get paid, how students pay into it, even the grading system is transactional and reflects the capitalist yeah. society that we live in. And so, you know, on my end, sure, yeah, um, it's rewarding to teach. It's really cool to see students understand concepts that you want them to understand um, in, and, and thrive within that knowledge base. 
but it also sucks to see colleagues who, you know, need to survive on a certain number of sections lose out on $6,000 or however much they get paid a section because not enough students signed up, you know? And so now they're scrambling to figure out what to do. And there's colleagues that we have on Twitter who are um, being told by their universities that they either have to go back on campus and teach in a death trap during a pandemic, or oops, actually, you don't get to teach at all this semester because we're not putting so many classes up. You know what I mean? That precarity is built into the system and it's not all happy fun times all the time. You know? Even the worst person in the world when it comes to university discourse, the Pied Piper of cancellation, Mr. Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, like, even he has a really good point, which you hate to see it, but he says that you know a lot of his points are informed by the marketization of the university. Um, and I'm like, God damn it, you're right. Like, except that that correct point doesn't justify anything else that you say, because the the real point that his situation brings up is, you know, at will employment and the fact that, you know, he was probably kind of a shitty teacher and his students didn't want to listen to him. So he ended up getting fired. Right. Uh, Maybe there could have been another situation uh, or an outcome. Maybe he's a decent researcher uh, or, or maybe he did get to you know, deserve to get fired. I, I don't know. I'm not there. But the, the fact of the matter is like that sort of retaliation, quote unquote, for speaking up about a situation at your job, you know, ask any leftist ever that has spoken up and, and also simultaneously been working in a job where they're not totally financially independent. Ask Norman fucking Fekelstein. <laughs> yeah, Ask for real. Norman Fekelstein, <laughs> who I've read his books. They're well-researched. They're well-argued. He has a moat. Here's the things that you need to be able to get into a department at a university. You need to be a decent teacher. That doesn't have to last, though. You can you can suck immediately after. Once you get on tenure track, you're fine. Or if, you're, if you come from a prestigious, like, if your pedigree is good enough, you'll be fine. You don't have to be a good teacher. You need a, a, a cogent body of research that uh, a, a field of study that's going to sort of that specifies the type of thing that you're interested in, the kind of research projects you're going to do. And then in moving up the tenure track, you need a book to move from assistant to associate and a book to move from associate to full professor. And then you need the will of the university to put you into that spot. When you have everything except for the will of the university, it's the only thing that's missing from that formula. Well, you can go out on a limb to say that because Norman Finkelstein has a lot of views that people really, really don't care for and that aren't popular, well, all of a sudden the independence in education and, you know, the freedom of speech and all of that stuff just goes immediately out the window. There's no, like, there's no justifying what's happened to him uh, unless you can just, just as you were saying, Mel, fully understand that education is not removed from the social conditions that create it. It's not removed from the economic conditions that create it. And then as a result, I'm working on a piece of writing for, a very cool publication right now that basically is talking about this the the culture <laughs> the culture that emerges from these contexts is this weird like sort of like almost like it, it is this almost copy of reality that is trying to duplicate this idea that we've been talking about that education like that universities exist outside of the cultural discourses that go on around them there's this silver bullet that's just there and we just need to fund it the right way and give enough people enough, here's the word, opportunities to be able to go and do the thing for themselves, which is just not how this works. And there's no better time to understand those contradictions than in the middle of a pandemic when you go to these university homepages and the homepages themselves do not look any different at all from how they normally would, um, except that everyone is wearing a mask it's the eeriest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. But what it demonstrates to us is that what's going on behind the scenes and the veil that's pulled over it are not sufficient enough to mask what's currently going on in universities, which is basically that they're going to, they're, they're leaving the construction of universities and how they work has left them with two choices. One protect like, realize your obligation and your duty to protect students and young people who have chosen to come to your campus and pay you a bunch of fucking money or two to increase the amount of money that you're bringing in to prepare for a tuition 
to, to prepare for the shortfall that's going to come from tuition. And then next year to prepare from the budget shortfall that's going to come from state governments, which based off of what happened in 2008 is going to be even worse this time. So not only are university people in universities are given this sort of out because they're, they're seen as not from within these particular discourses, but like you can see the, 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 the sort of capitalist realist bullshit that's happening on a university homepage right now, the university where my master's degree is from, if you go to their homepage right now, they have all these fancy, like they prepared for this. They prepared their marketing materials to be reopening. They have people in N95 masks taking selfies and smiling behind the eyes because you can't see their smiles because they're wearing a fucking mask. But it's it's so eerie and strange, but it makes perfect sense within the context and the particularities of our current moment. There's no doubt in my mind that people are looking at that shit and going, I know that this does that. Why am I on why am I on Georgia State's website right now and they have a picture of the statue of their mascot who's wearing a mask? Why is that? This is not normal. This is not like the normal that was promised that those of us who are good, healthy anti-capitalists know that the normal that came before this was not normal at all. But now I think people are realizing like, okay, this is not how things are. It's not how they were. It's also not how they're supposed to be. But then university presidents who are so like empowered by their, their individual decision-making and these administrators who see themselves from within this cultural context of the absolute good of higher education in the United States are basically given all of the sort of all of the all of the onus for all of the stuff is put on them in some way but then they're also simultaneously restricted by the social conditions that they find themselves in and that it's so it's gotten to the point to where in the 1990s uh, and th this is I'm making in particular reference to Mark Fisher here in the 1990s, there is this sort of like, you saw this emerging of more surrealistic, more sort of like pushing the culture that pushes the boundaries with popular culture and commercialization. He uses an example one time about how commercials got really surrealistic and weird in the 1990s and no one seemed to pay it. So no one seemed to know. Everyone's like, this is fine. This is normal. It's wacky, but whatever. Yeah. Pepsi, cool. It made me want to go into advertising for a little bit because I it mean, seemed like the coolest place to write weird shit. Yes, <laughs> and they got like good people. Like I'm surprised. I, like I'm surprised there are some more artists who are still active right now who weren't doing commercials in the 1990s because there were some really like it's it's the Sonic Youth principle. It's my favorite band in the world who were unapologetic capitalists, and so it hurts me. But you know we have to deal with we you know we we, we kill our darlings. But like within the context of their career, they started out in no wave, the, like an anti-music movement in New York City in the early 1980s. They were playing in Glenn Branca's guitar orchestra, Lee Ronaldo and uh, uh, Thurston Moore were. And then when they get signed to a major label, all of a sudden, like I, I'm fine that more people heard their music and the records they made in the 1990s are incredible, some of their best, but you start to see how Sonic Youth was able to more seamlessly merge with the cultural discourses of the 1990s because this was the end of history. And it makes me think about uh, villains in horror, in, uh, all, in like action movies and stuff. You started to move away from the 1980s sort of like very concrete enemy, which was, they were always Russian. There were always, always some like insidious Russian communist who was coming to destroy the great capitalist United States. And the, the radical individual had to stand up, you know, it, it, or, or they were Asian as well, because they're also dirty commies, and none of this is racist at all, of course. Um, and then when you get to the 1990s, all of a sudden, a lot of villains in pop culture start to become this sort of, they are the bad capitalists. The only thing that people can imagine, since an alternative to capitalism was completely wiped out after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the consciousness of Western culture, all of a sudden you start to see the opponents of your, of the, of the, your protagonists in in these like in video games and in film and that sort of a thing are these like crazy corporate overlords who are just like they have all this power and all this money and, and now it's just like i'm gonna make a big weapon and blow everybody up which like doesn't make any logical sense but that's because they're the bad capitalists the good cops the good capitalists have logic reason they are good liberals and they understand that we have to just buy, 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 insert all the liberal crap here. And then on the other side of it, they just, they have to basically like construct 
the ultimate enemy in the end of history, which is a capitalist who doesn't do what they're supposed to do. But the problem with that uh, is that one, it's not really realistic. It doesn't really correlate to the individual human agency and desires of capitalists as well, millionaires and billionaires as well. But now after this has run its course for a while, we're basically experiencing this weird cultural inversion of like the villains of the 1990s. All of a sudden, like the villainy has like the nonsensical stuff like this, this like stuff that shouldn't make any sense, like reopening a university in the middle of a pandemic and deciding there's an acceptable number of dead students, like this stuff that shouldn't make any sense, that should be villainous, that should be nonsensical is our actual reality. But the problem with places like higher education is that they have these cultural discourses that have already decided that what they're doing is good, have already decided that what they're doing is appropriate and is, going, is the thing that needs to happen. They exist outside of the boundaries of capital. But we know that that's not true. And now basically what they're doing is the most, the, the furthest reaches of the capitalist realist imagination from the 1990s not only has become our reality, but it's our reality with agency, with justification, with, you know, now decades and decades of a certain type of economic sort of consciousness, like lending itself and giving them credibility. And so when we engage with culture and we, we do a cultural critique of what universities are doing right now, we can see that even though there's been this inversion and now they're doing this crazy nonsensical villainous stuff, they're still trying to use the same stuff that they've used for the past 20 years to cover it up and make things seem like it's the authentic college experience that students are going to miss out on, which what the fuck does that mean? First of all, I graduated college when I was like 26 years old. It took me like eight years to get through school. I dropped out for two years. Like I, like I worked three jobs. My authentic college experience was authentically shit. So mm -hmm. I don't like, I don't yeah. know what any of that stuff means, but they're still using it and justifying it. And I'm hoping well, I mean, it's it's, it, you know? it's easier to justify it with like some sort of student cultural thing than to say we actually need to keep funneling money into our pockets. But that this culture, is how we're going to do it. That cultural thing is just a product. At the end of the day, what they're selling is a commodified experience. Uh, it's an imagined ideal experience, which. Uh, depending on what you're interested in may check a few different boxes and you can shop around at the different universities and pick a, a, an experience that, that fits your desire. Um, and, you know, there are some that are more prestigious and some that are higher value and perhaps maybe more akin to like a luxury good where they give you access to all these different things and give you status. Uh, and, now we're seeing that that product is deadly and yet they don't care and so the veneer of empathy you know or which you know maybe we might characterize certain embattled industries like education or healthcare or a few others where people who tend to be empathetic seem to be drawn to them and and then that empathy is uh, manipulated or squeezed um, like blood from a stone because the market doesn't have empathy. It's actually anti-empathy. It doesn't give a shit. And, and so um, these sort of administrative functionaries like the presidents are, uh, to your point, um, Kyle, you know, much more exposed to the exterior of like the, you know, the, the actual market, even if certain folks within um, you know, the education industry or within healthcare as well are insulated to a certain degree. Um, they still are exposed um, to these incentive structures and, and, and so on and so forth. But presidents and administrators, uh, certainly so. Like at, in my university, in my experience, the, the main function of the president was to basically raise money and to wine and dine um, donors. And to a certain degree, I know that universities also have pressure from um, sort of their clients, uh, so to speak, which you could say 
are the big industry players that rely on universities as recruiting mills. I have, uh, uh, there's a lab uh-huh. at my university that is named, it's called the Lockheed Martin something, <laughs> yeah. something lab. I go to a, like a STEM, like a hyper STEM school. That was there's like, a Ford lab at my school. Yeah. Go ahead. Meanwhile, the, the, the University of Nebraska at Omaha, I'm in my last year of grad school. I don't care anymore. Um, they just took a $35 million 10 year grant from the Department of Homeland Security to create a counterterrorism program specifically so that they could research urban counterterrorism and domestic policy. Now let's, let's, let's pick that apart because it's really hard for me to understand what they mean by urban. What do you think they mean by urban? Those dirty Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters. I know. know, Although, you know, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. For, for all the jokes and, and things that we could say about that, which have a lot of truth to them, it depends because some of these folks, you know, to their credit, you know, like, for example, the IDF, Deleuze and, and Guattari. So, like, to their credit, some of these folks might have read something like Rebel City's great book uh, about how the city and the urban landscape, you know, is probably the site and center of not only um, capital accumulation and um, the disposal of surplus production, but also, like, radical and revolutionary activity uh, for that reason. Um, so, you know, t- to that point, these folks may be on to something uh, oh, in, a, in a way that we don't like. <laughs> here's, 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 here's what I think, you know, Chad Wolf, he isn't in the ground yet, and I want to redact it, Chad Wolf, but um, this dude pulled something like $350 million from defense budget or whatever budget he pulled the money from federally so that he could start these grant programs to do all these things. And Omaha has a unique position of being the exact center of the country of not necessarily having, you know, we have some, some, you know, uh, immigration services and ICE services that are happening here, but not nearly as much as someplace like California right? Anywhere that's within 100 miles of the border, you know what I mean? Um, And there is a, we are sort of in the city, oftentimes we have been kind of a hotbed of socialist activity. And so it makes sense that you would want to put a program like this, where they are building a, I think they're building a new wing of a building down in our STEM area, our business college or something, to actually start this project over the next 10 years, you know? We have some of the most vocal people in the Afghan studies department from the University of Nebraska who made a lot of headlines post 9-11 about the type of research they were doing. Um, So it just makes sense for it to be there. That sucks. That sucks. Right? To to both of your points, um, one, the Midwest is a perfect place for this type of a project uh, for everything that you said, Mel, and probably for a million reasons more too. And Stephen, to your particular point, I think that's something that people miss a lot. Um, in my work and in my, honestly, just being a historian who does, I, I do intellectual history, which sounds like, it sounds a lot like, it sounds a lot like more hoity-toity than it actually is. It used to be pretty hoity-toity. It's not quite as much anymore. It's, it, it, uh, it, it's basically, it's about the way that you approach individual texts and that, and the way that you contextualize those author, the authors of those texts within whatever it is you're trying to study. My master's project was on the apostle Paul. So was my bachelor's honors thesis as well, which I'm really excited to move away from him uh, and antiquity in general, but uh, basically trying to determine how like the, the production of consciousness that goes into the creation of a text and how this particular text sort of, arises from that but if it taught me anything about like studying historical sources and individual people and that sort of a thing if there's something that 
a lot of people miss, including a lot of anti-capitalists in particular, it's that there are individual wills to being and desire and power that are behind all of the stuff that we see. And it is unfortunately not as simple as the rich people or this type of a person or this any type of a person, rich person or a working class person is doing things for X big broad reason. Like, you know, not at, the point being that not every capitalist is waking up in the morning and they get their big fluffy white cat and they sit in a chair and think about how they can exploit workers that day. A lot of capitalists think that they're doing good. They think that they are making meaning in their own life as well in the lives of others. They figure out ways to sort of justify not just their station and their position, but also how to morally ontologically in terms of how they, their state of being, as well as their knowledge, all of these different things that they're able to sort of leverage toward the point that, there are, that they basically already made, which is that what I'm doing is good and what others are doing as well. I can't guarantee that it's going to be good, but some good could stem from it. And then us as individuals have a tendency in all kinds of places, but especially in these types of STEM type of places, have a tendency to get caught up in these sort of like more, like, Everything, it, it seems like we're getting the big picture when it's like, oh, this sounds good. Like, like let's say like counterterrorism wing in a university. Terrorism is bad. Ergo, I should do what I can. Urban centers and cities are the future. Uh, urbanization is increasing. We should figure out a way to engage with urbanization in a way that's productive for all kinds of people. Those are on their own good, like general, like generally good ideas. But when you just contextualize them even a little bit, terrorism especially, even that word has connotations that are so aggressive and so racist and so like so discriminatory, especially in the United States post 2001, that like it, it becomes impossible. It feels like it at least. I don't think it's impossible, but it becomes so hard to separate those broader discourses from the individuals that are exercising their agency from within it. And I think we it just can we can gloss over that very easily. Well, I think you you have a point. I think you and O probably applied for the grant or saw that this grant was possible, saw that there would be benefit. You know, you and O is a university, yeah. But I think on the back end, DHS was like, oh, this is a perfect recruiting tool in a city that has Stratcom and one of the most robust ROTC programs in a university right? Like yep. it's the perfect recruiting tool in this area that they don't have a whole lot of operational movement really that you see so, so um, apparently on the borders and they just went with it, right? Which is why they get a pretty solid chunk of that grant money for a 10 year, a decade long program, you know, that'll take them maybe, maybe two to two to five years to really like solidify into something that is going to be producing the type of knowledge base that they're looking for. It won't take very long, right? So it's this sort of long game project where DHS is like, hmm, how do we gain a foothold here? You know, let's prey on the sort of, um, I'm not going to call it naive, but perhaps altruistic leanings of, of individuals who are just seeking out knowledge or attempting mm -hmm. to submit something worthwhile to the community in which they live, right? Yes. Yeah, yes, I, I think this all brings up some really important points when it comes to how we engage with people who, um, you know, may find themselves in like a program like this or working in a drone center in a more extreme case or something along those lines where um, maybe they ended up there for reasons that they think are altruistic um and it's well-meaning um and, and yet some people might be quick to call that person evil or this that or the other um and you know it's 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 tough because we are trying to win people over to our side and we are trying to contextualize all of these things and um it makes me think of you know folks like um like you know when you're talking about um his, intellectual history folks like Karl Popper who wrote so much about how you engage with people in a tolerant way but also the extremely relevant notion of the paradox of intolerance where you know I, I would say most of the time like you know the example of someone who maybe they're working at the DHS 
and they're seeing what's going on uh, and they're feeling bad about it. Um, how do you engage with someone like that in a compassionate way versus someone who's just straight up a vocal racist or Nazi? Um, and and in, in that case, I think it's fair to apply the, you know, the rule of the paradox of intolerance, which for the folks that aren't familiar with it, it's just the idea that anyone who's, you know, really vocal and um, straightforward and actually believing that somebody doesn't have the right to exist uh, or something along those lines, you know, it's like you have to stop that from metastasizing into a cancer because it destroys all other forms of life, um, which I think all of us, whatever form of life we would ascribe to are not that. So, um, you know, it's like, maybe there are people like in DHS that are those people and I think we should point to them, uh, uh, like probably the director uh, of it or the acting director or whatever the fuck you want to call him because people argue that he legally doesn't have the responsibility to do what he's doing. Um, like, you know, maybe he's the kind of person that you could say is a fascist, but uh, I don't know, like Debbie in accounting, um, I, I would hope that she knows that she can quit her job. <laughs> Um, but she might need some help in order to quit her job, you know? Uh, well, yeah, I, I don't know. I, does that does that make sense, or am I am I giving Debbie's the Debbies of the world a little too too easy of a time? No, I think I think that I think that's a good point to bring up. It also leads me to a point of um, we're constantly telling. Maybe this is too controversial. We're constantly telling people to quit their jobs because they are part of oppressive institutions that are killing people. What's the, um, have we offered anything else for them to step into? You know what I mean? Yeah, I, that's, that's a I don't, great question. I don't think, I don't think I will always tell a cop to quit their fucking job. Always. I, I just want to make that caveat, right? But I think on the other side of the same coin, while we are continuing to heckle the fuck out of the police, um, we also need to be thinking about what would that, what would an actual like sort of like vocational relocation program look like? How do you funnel these people who are also living under capitalism? Are you talking about like doing a mutual aid rehab, <laughs> yeah. rehab for cops? Like you found a cop on the street and you brought it in <laughs> and, and you, you, you really like cleaned him up and you, <laughs> you helped him become a librarian. You gave him a suit and took him to a job interview. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I worry that like we don't think about that shit too, too often. We just think about burning down the system, which is understandable and I'm all for it. You will catch me on the right line with my camera anytime in full support. But like when we talk about alternative forms of how to build communities without say policing, what are some of the things that are we are offering to to cops who do quit their jobs, who do what resign? Are, what are we offering is I think a term, uh, is a question that people don't ask enough. Um, to, to, you know, the slight little conversation we had earlier about how I think it's fine to, you know, incentivize, if you're in a classroom environment, you have notoriously difficult students and you need to incentivize them toward good behavior. I don't think there's anything wrong with that personally, in the same way that like, you cannot talk about dismantling oppressive institutions and not have something of something of it doesn't have to be perfect it doesn't have to be the perfect utopian socialist future i'm sorry the utopian communist future after socialism you know destroys the state and we can we all don't need any of that shit anymore like, like until that moment what are we doing uh, and how are we, it, 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 you can even boil it down to, because we're not going like, to, I know personally, I haven't gotten any cops to fuck off and quit their job yet, which, you know, fingers crossed. But at the same time, if we, if we, if we, if we continue complicating that discourse and we apply it to other parts, even within the context of like moving someone out of one political ideology into another, um, like what has often been like the, like real handhold for left-wing institutions in the middle part of the 20th century, it was the organized party most of the time. What really became like a foothold or a handhold for them to be able to continue was the development of their own unique institutions and culture. The best example that I can think of is 
in Italy, and I, I most of what I do now is uh, in, in academic work is contextualize antiquity antiquity within contemporary Italy, usually in the form of like monuments and public history institutions and that kind of a thing. Mamma <laughs> Italian defenders. <laughs> I, am, I am the less chief Italian defender as like a Polish Irish, like a southerner from the southern United States. <laughs> like, okay, like let me be clear. I'm anti Italian American, yeah. but I'm pro Italian. As an Italian American, I'm allowed to speak to my people, but I like Pretty the much. Italians. <laughs> See, this is good. Uh, <laughs> In the, so, so within the context of the middle part of the 20th century moving into the 1980s, Italian politics got fucking wacky. Uh, not as wacky as it ended up getting in the 1990s. Um, uh, but one of the things that happened was it, over that period, it sort of the, 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 the handhold that the, uh, the PCI, the Partito Comunista Italiano, uh, the, the Italian Communist Party. Hey! Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, terrible <God>. Danza. <laughs> uh, oh, <laughs> oh, <pardon>. <laughs> <laughs> I for bringing it up Italy. Uh, <laughs> so you started to see this ebb of historical, like, left-wing formations around the country as industrial, the part, sort of industrial centers of the country have started sort of shifting to other locations. You can mute yourself all you want. I can still see you laughing. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love, I love this video chat so much. You both are so cool. Um, <laughs> Uh, you start to see these traditional sort of like centers of power for the Italian Communist Party move away as industrialism starts to shift and change and neoliberalism starts to become not just a thing that Europeans and Americans force on Latin America and South America, but that they bring back home too. And uh, under those circumstances, there is this red center, like the center, the central part of the Italian country stayed red. And people were trying to figure out for years why exactly that happened. And the conclusion that people have come to, scholars as well as, you know, others, um, have, like, they, they've managed to sort of contextualize these particular cultural institutions that were created uh, within that time through the party that consisted of, like, you know, sports clubs and bars and shit. And, like, they had these central points of engagement expression and the means to continue building community and use that and not just as the like the means to further their particular political project but also to help change people's minds and move yeah. them over to their side so when when it was supposed when the pci was supposed to be dead as disco uh and before they changed they split and then we had more of a social democratic party and then the refoundation party that emerged in the beginning of the 1990s. There are all these communists that were kind of people who were registered with the party, who were voting with, with the party and who were represented by the party, who were sticking around and people couldn't figure out why. And the why is because they had something to offer them that gave not just meaning to their lives, not just structure, stuff that we, I crave structure like crazy. I have to make it for myself. and nowadays just because I, I have such nuclear like diagnosed medicated ADHD that if I don't I will never get anything done but like they had also a place for people to sort of formulate their identities and to create their own thing to express themselves within not just the context that were created for them but to begin to become immersed in the project and then to have portions of self-realization out of that it reminds me of what Mark said about leisure time and how the identity, the the sort of the 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 self is developed in our leisure time. And part of the reason why it was so important for Marx to talk about was because he was seeing in the way that he understood how industrial production was going is that it was sort of for lack of a better term, colonizing the other portions of people's lives so much to where they were unable to like really self-identify uh, with something that did, wasn't just one of these institutions that had been built by capitalists for them. They didn't have the means for self-realization. And I think that's not only such a pervasive problem in our contemporary moment that I'm making a two-part video about it, but also that there are these like 
like it's become in a way we've improved our quality of life but our sense of self has become even more distant and not to say that like to go back to the past would help us realize the self that's literally being reactionary that's literal fascism what i mean is that uh as we've moved into this sort of like as we moved into the world that neoliberalism promised us in the 1960s and 70s, that we were going to sort of disrupt our normal comings and goings and that all of these appliances and all these things we could buy, all of this would automate portions of our lives to where we could spend more time with our 2.4 kids and our dog and in our weird suburban house that looks like everyone else's suburban house. Like this was going to be our lives. We could cut the lawn as much as we wanted to. But what ended up happening is we got all of that stuff and all of that stuff did become easier. And it did give people who mostly women who were burdened with housework and burdened, burdened with taking care of children, a chance to explore other things. But what it ended up doing was serving the capitalist class, giving them the actual sort of understanding of leisure time and automation and stuff that they told everyone else that they should expect. And all the rest of us either have to answer emails when we're off the clock, or we have these sort of like these discourses that have evolved and changed in American culture that make us feel guilty for not working when we're at home by ourselves, who, or other than that, we have this sort of anxious scrolling, like, like syndrome. Uh, I'm referencing actually more Mark Fisher, sorry. Uh, an essay that he called Time Wars that was published in Wired, a really, really interesting and important essay that talks about just how, and he's borrowing some from Franco Berardi here, how there's this like anxiety, special kind of anxiety in our contemporary moment that we feel like we, it's like academic FOMO as they used to call it. We constantly have this fear of not knowing the thing or not seeing the thing or not experiencing the thing. And so there's this impulse within us to scroll on the same three venture capitalist funded apps until we get the satisfaction that we need, until we have a better means of self-identifying ourselves. And I'm not saying that those apps do only bad, definitely not. I met both of you on Twitter, that was pretty cool. I had lots of friends and people that I know that I like very much and I respect a lot that I've been able to collaborate with that I've met on Twitter. Like I, I would not, like, I'm working on a collaboration with one of the smartest people I know right now, the Lit Crit guy, as I'm sure everyone on my Twitter feed and lots of people who listen to y'all are familiar with. He and I would not have connected if it weren't for the internet. But we have to acknowledge how our contemporary moment, we were promised something that turned out to be so much different. Now we just have the shitty future rather than this like sort of bourgeois liberal fantasy that we were handed for so long. And we can see now that it's just, it's bullshit. If I work in one of those supposedly audit, like these desk jobs that were like supposed to get us like away from manual labor to where people didn't have to break their backs all the time, sit out in the sun, that sort of a thing. We're able to be inside, be comfortable. That comfort has turned into an oppressive comfort. Like you can't be comfortable, you can't be satisfied with your life unless you are performing the particular desires and ideas and like motivations of your boss, even in your hours, in your supposed, you're supposed, like we're in liberalism, like we have our domicile, mine that I rent for too much money, like you, you're supposed to be able to get away from that stuff here. That's what the quote, that's what this private property, like that's what this property value, like that, that's how we were supposed to like escape from the rest of the world and sort of right. like go into our inner self. But like, we can't even do that because email, war on email. I am officially declaring war on email. I hate email, but well, like, oh man. As, as we've seen the proliferation of all the technology that's allowed for us to break free from a lot of the former structures that used to give structure and provide a certain sense of comfort, um, but have been withered away for a number of, of reasons, uh, not just the technology, like I'm not just a technological materialist, there's other you know, political and economic and social reasons why people don't have bowling leagues really anymore and things like that. Um, but you know, the, the point of that is that, um, you know, now we've got this world of nodes, like everybody is like a node, um, and that's extremely alienating in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's coupled with this, it's like this new form of alienation. It's not just the form of alienation of like, you know, you, you forego your leisure time to then literally create capital 
um, and that capital is like your alienated time into the future. And then you're, you're basically foregoing the opportunity to create yourself in order to create this alien thing um, and use it to produce more alien products. Um, but we, we live in a world in which most people, even though we're surrounded by all of this great technology um, that allows us to connect with each other, for example, like we, none of us have ever even actually met, um, yet we have been able to collaborate. Like we, we don't really have the material resources that we need in order to um, actualize some of these visions. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we, we saw um, a bit of a sparkle of this, like, you know, throughout, not just once, but, you know, like in the 60s and 68, we saw this uh, big emergence and a crack in the world, this sort of uh, eruption of people basically saying, hey, we want to take this time to actually make ourselves. Um, and that's a threatening thing to the existing power structures. Um, and so like, we're seeing this big backlash and this big uh, reaction and backslide towards fascism, uh, even in like the narratives, which we had the disappearance of the Cold War enemy in a lot of pop culture uh, for quite a bit of time. And then we had the reemergence of that, but in the form of the terrorist, um, which is a far more fluid and in many ways effective uh, enemy because it's, you know, I don't want to give too much credit to Orwell, but you know, it's sort of like the, the what is it? Goldstein um, in the book, the, the figure that can basically just be become anybody and can be replaced easily, like the enemy that is just a, an enemy figure. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, we had a sense of that in the Cold War. It wasn't always the Russian. Sometimes it was the Iranian or sometimes it was, um, you know, someone from Tripoli, but it, it doesn't matter. Like, uh, and it doesn't work as well anymore, you know, because we all talk about how it's all bullshit uh, and people talked about how it was bullshit back then. And now there are more counter narratives, but I, I, I don't know, like it, 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 yeah, it's a critical moment. It seems like we're living in a very critical moment um, in the lead up to, or in the midst of what people have called iron times. It's almost yeah, like yeah. That's the ugh. so excited. It's <laughs> great. It's great. We're yeah. we're we're getting to a little bit over an hour of talking, um, and you talking about the sort of nodes and the digital era is actually a really great segue into um, our Protean podcast rebrand. Kyle, you are the official first guest on the new Protean podcast. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Steven is also going to be joining us, uh, regularly as co-host. How do you feel about that, Steven? Feel weird? She's making me do this under <laughs> duress. I've been threatened with a mutiny otherwise. So we're here. Yeah. Speaking of pirate puns, the, the rebrand is, um, going to be Protean Pirate Radio. Um, the rebrand happened as a result of changing political climates uh, in the last six months. We put out some really great episodes about leftist media, with poets, with documentary filmmakers, um, with all sorts of really great people. Um, you know, um, but shit changed. COVID happened. Uh, Summer of Fire is ongoing, and we feel the need to sort of rebrand to. Um, I hate saying the word rebrand. We've just changed things up, man. Um, we're all a bunch of pirates um, buying into the legacy of the pirate radio station um, and doing our best to make as many pirate puns as possible within, you know, every single uh, podcast episode. But um, we feel that by doing this, we can put out episodes about whatever the hell we want with really cool fucking people. So it also makes the acronym PPR. So Kyle, you are our first guest on this episode of PPR. Welcome. Th thank you for joining us. This is this is my PPR voice. How do how do they hear themselves talk when they I don't know? I don't. Fuck? I don't know. 
It's ha huh, God. Well, I mean, it's it's fine because all of the extra space is just filled up by the egos of these NPR assholes. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, that's pretty much that's what we've got. So uh, hopefully you enjoy our sort of newly conceptualized podcast where we're still going to be doing spotlights on all the cool creatives who come through Protean, um, talking about all the great people who write stuff for us. Um, but we also want revolutionary manifestos and calls to action, mutual aid and solidarity projects. We want to talk to people who are on the ground in these places, continuing the very important work of fighting against a fascist government. Um, and we hope that this platform will be something that will make you happy and make you feel inspired and light a fire um, and, you know, have something to listen to as we drift deeper into the collapse of the empire. It's great. Yeah. A drift in the digital ocean of that's on fire and everyone's dying around us. I, it, I it's, it's, it's an, it's an ocean. It's made of oil and it's on fire, but we're, it's fine. We're in a boat and somehow that protects us. We, yes. we can't reveal the secrets of that. That would put us in danger, but otherwise we're, we're good and you're safe with us. So just yep. you know, strap in. Strap in. Safe in the lake of fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, so any final words? Kyle, thanks for coming on. Um, you, All of our listeners who are listening to this, this new inaugural episode is contractually obligated to go check out Kyle's YouTube channel. Can you uh, let everyone know where they can talk to you and, and commiserate on on? The collapse of the U.S. Empire. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I love Protean. Uh, I stuck. Uh, if you, if you're real, real, uh, real heads know on my YouTube channel. If you look in the background of my uh, my video on Outlast Two and the Capitalist Death Cult, you can see a copy of Volume Two of Protean on the bookshelf. Um, just because not not just because it was so good. Uh, it was really good. The content was great, but it's got that Ellie Valley cover that just, whew, just, I got that thing in the mail. I'm like, oh, shit. It's a, it's a spicy meatball. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it is a spicy meatball. That is true. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you. <laughs> You can find me on YouTube. That's where I spend a lot of time. I make videos about uh, uh, cultural. I use video games often as metaphors, sometimes as points of criticism to discuss culture in our contemporary moment. Uh, I, I, I work toward trying to create content that's not just at least somewhat informative. So I limit the number of sources that I use. I try and engage in one mode of analysis. I'm not trying to do yeah, I, I have a video that use a lot, uses a lot of psychoanalysis. I'm not going to throw anything else besides psychoanalysis in there because I understand how like goofy and complex this stuff can be. But I, I, I really enjoy taking basically the hobby that I've had ever since I was young and we got like garage, started getting garage sale video games in my broke ass family and trying to do something that's both entertaining and productive uh, and kind of wacky because I have to be arty. I can't help myself. Uh, but that's at youtube.com slash labor Kyle. Uh, I also Twitch stream, uh, because video games, uh, that's also labor Kyle is me on everything. And then I tweet too much. So you can find me there too. And we can continue the conversation about, uh, creating the new vanguard of video games. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. 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 I think we all tweet too much, but that's okay. Yeah, that's all right. I will not log off. Yep, never logging off. Terminally online. 